On this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, the group's going to be looking at a couple of verses in the Old Testament book of Exodus that they feel are some of the most important words in the entire Bible. Bill Crowder will be leading the group this week, and he says that some of what we'll discover is thrilling, some of it's awe-inspiring, and some of it may be somewhat troubling as we explore this critical passage in Exodus 34. Because this is such an important statement, we really want to spend our conversations unpacking this because this is what God wanted his children to know about him. These words are repeated 12 times in the Old Testament. Now think about that. Obviously, this is really important. Mm -hmm. There's a sense which I kind of feel like we're on holy ground here, that this is some of the most important stuff we will ever discover together in the scriptures. So I trust that uh, as we come into this, we'll be ready to hear from God through the scriptures the things he wants us to know about him. And so what kind of God, what kind of father is he? Let's explore that together on this Discover the Word podcast. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And as I said, Bill will be leading these discussions centered around Exodus chapter 34 and verses 6 and 7. We've titled this study, What Kind of Father Is He? Because in these two verses, God describes himself to Moses. And that's why this is such a fundamentally important part of the Bible for us to have a firm grasp upon. Because this gives us a context for understanding some of those challenging questions we have about God as we read the story of the Bible. Knowing this is the kind of God, the kind of Father He is, just puts that into perspective. But even this description has its challenges and its troubling parts. And so we'll have to confront those head on before we get to the end of this hour. So grab your copy of the scriptures, find Exodus 34 verses six and seven, and let's get started in this study called, What Kind of Father Is He? Have you ever been introduced to someone who, and I'm using air quotes for our listeners, <laughs> who is important? I remember meeting Tim Tebow one time, and then I also remember meeting Max Lucado. And I don't know why, but I was um, I was leading Mops International at that time, and I grabbed him, not grabbed him physically, but I, mean, <laughs> I invited him to talk in my phone. And I had all the staff gathered, and he prayed over our staff. It was super. Super cool. Yeah, uh-huh. super cool. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the name George Beverly Shea? Yes. Of course. He was, of course. you know, Billy Graham's, what was he? He was a baritone, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. But anyway, is one of the singers for the Crusades. I thought so many times about the fact that when I was fairly young, my dad had a dinner with George Beverly Shea, and he invited me to go along. And I thought, oh, that's so cool. Actually, Mart, <laughs> you know, one of Evan's dreams was to meet him. And somebody knew him. It may be you that connected. I can't remember who it was. But they had him call on Evan's birthday, and he sang happy birthday oh, to him. Oh, you're kidding? Him. Really? <laughs> yes. It's like oh, a life man. memory now. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Sometimes, depending on who the person is and, and kind of what their ethos is, Sometimes it can be inspiring to meet someone influential or famous. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can be fun. Sometimes it can be intimidating. 
depending on who the person is. Sometimes it can be a real letdown. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Really. You know, yeah. you meet somebody you've always looked up to. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden, they just kind of ignored you, you know. Yeah. Oh. yeah, and sometimes it can be a little overwhelming just because, mm-hmm. you know, you live in a different world than they do. If you take all of that and lump it together and then push it to infinity, mm-hmm. uh, what would it be like to meet with God face to face? Well, I think it's hard to picture, first of all, like what I am meeting, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Because, I mean, we think of Jesus, right, who is God, and we have these images that many of which are probably inaccurate to how he actually looked when he was on earth, but that we've seen in Sunday school or whatever. But when we think of God, we often think of like light or we think of glory, whatever, however we define that. And so it's hard to even picture what it would be. Like, what am I seeing? What am I hearing? Mm-hmm. What am I smelling? Mm-hmm. You know, what would that yeah. even be? And don't you think, too, it, we might imagine meeting him under what circumstances? Yeah, right. Because well, that's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, dying. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, yeah. a lot of, and throughout the Bible, even when they meet angels, people are afraid that they're going to be yeah. killed first. And usually right. if they're not going to be, the angel mm-hmm. yeah. has to say, don't be afraid. And we imagine meeting God the Father, especially mm-hmm. upon our death. Well, and... In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus encounters John on the Isle of Patmos, and Jesus is in this radiant, glorious state. Mm-hmm. And John falls at his feet like he's dead. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost he's almost knocked unconscious just by the presence of Jesus. So because of what the Bible tells us about Jesus, we believe that we would be welcome, that we would be loved, that we would sense that. But there's also this otherness that's a little off-putting. And I wanted us to talk about all this because we're going to talk about an encounter that Moses had with God. And I kind of want us to start off being a little sympathetic toward Moses, because this had to have been a difficult, challenging, overwhelming kind of experience. And it's not the first time that he's encountered him. We know that. But just to get a sense of what it might have felt like to Moses. Mark, would you read to us Exodus 33, verse 11? All right. The verse talks about the fact that Moses would speak to the Lord face to face as one speaks to a friend. Okay. There are two components to that. There's the face to face part, which Daniel goes to your, what am I looking at? What am I seeing? And in some way, Moses felt there was the kind of intimacy you would get in talking face to face, but also the kind of intimacy that you would get talking to a friend. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those things feel a little distant to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's not what I would expect to see. In what sense, Bill? Well, just because of what we see in Revelation 1 with John falling at his feet as if dead. Right. And here we have Moses encountering God the Father. But he, he feels that there's this face-to-face intimacy and friendship, which carries a whole different pack of emotions with it. So by distant, do you mean kind of surprising? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, because it's very personal, yeah. Yeah, very personal. Yeah, now the one thing that might be helpful too is at this point in the story, Moses has had a handful of these interactions, and in his first interaction with the burning bush, he is afraid, right? Like, mm-hmm. let me go over and see this strange sight. I mean, there is this like otherworldliness. I don't know how to respondness mm-hmm. to it. So it's almost like maybe Moses has had enough of these encounters and God has shown up in a friendly way yeah. that Moses is starting to practice. Okay. When I meet the Lord face to face, 
it's as if talking to a friend. Wouldn't that be nice? Do you think yeah. we ever get there? <laughs> well, again, Moses was in a unique role in a unique time in history. So I don't want us to get these kind of expectations that God's going to sit on the couch with us and have a chat. I mean, it's not necessarily implying that, but it is implying a very different kind of unexpected encounter. And from Exodus 33, where Mark read from us, the very next thing we come to is Exodus 34, obviously. And that's where we're going to spend our conversations this week, talking about what I think is one of the most profound experiences anywhere in the Bible that someone has personally with God himself. Because it's one of those times where God describes himself. In a sense, it's almost like he's saying to Moses, this is what I want you to know about me. This is after they have left Egypt, the Israelites, they've come to Mount Sinai, they've agreed to enter into a covenant with God. God has given them the Ten Commandments. They have broken the Ten Commandments already with a golden calf just in Exodus 32, just two mm-hmm. chapters ago. And in response to that, Moses shattered the two tablets that the Ten Commandments were recorded on. And so now we come to Exodus 34. And Moses is going to have another encounter where he meets with God face to face like a friend. And the setup to that is Exodus 34 verses 1 through 4. So Elisa, would you give us those? Okay, you bet. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former ones that you shattered. And so be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. And present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is to come with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. Okay, the first thing we need to understand is... We read over this, but there are a couple of little details. First thing is, Moses has one day to quarry two stone tablets. Okay, at this point, we believe Moses is about 80 years old. Mm -hmm. And so he's got to go quarry two stone tablets and then carry them, it says, to the top of the mountain Mm -hmm. the next day. So there's a certain amount of physical exertion involved in these instructions, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, do you think he learned from the first time around? He was like, wow, those were too heavy. I need to use some different rock <laughs> for yeah. this next set. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of physical exertion that Moses has to go through on this. Also, there's a warning. Nobody's to come with him. Even animals aren't allowed. Everything's prohibited. This is truly mm-hmm. face-to-face, one-on-one, God and Moses. And even though the tablets are so that God can reestablish his covenant with Israel that was broken with the golden calf, Moses' experience is not going to be primarily about the tablets. Moses' experience is going to be about God telling him, this is who I am. This is how I want you to understand me. And to get that, we go to the next day. Moses has just quarried the two stones. He's gotten a little bit of sleep. Now he's taken those stones climb to the top of Mount Sinai, and there he encounters God. So Daniel, what happens next? So it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name the Lord. The Lord passed before him, and the Lord proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There's so much there. Yeah, and there's some of it that feels very contradictory Mm -hmm. uh, to Mm -hmm. itself. And I think because this is such an important statement, we really want to spend our conversations unpacking this and trying to, to come to grips because this is what God wanted his children to know about him. And if this is what God wants them to know about him, then it's important that we really work through this carefully. I think it's really interesting. Mark read us earlier, Exodus 33, 11, Moses and God met face to face. So he's talking about what he sees in a sense. Here he talks about what he hears. Mm-hmm. Mm. So this is a different kind of uh, experience for Moses, but it becomes so critical to the people of Israel that these words that Daniel just read from Exodus 34, 6, and 7 are repeated 12 times in the Old Testament. Whoa. Now mm. think about that. Obviously, this is really important, mm. but the things that are repeated verbally in the Old Testament to describe the heart of God for his people are the things that are going to be realized in the New Testament when Jesus comes to represent his Father's heart to us. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like we're on holy ground here, that this is some of the most important stuff we will ever discover together in the Scriptures. So I trust that uh, as we come into this, we'll be ready to hear from God through the Scriptures the things he wants us to know about him. And the invitation that I hear in that, Bill, that you're describing is because it's repeated so often, and we've probably heard a lot taught on this passage in the past, maybe the invitation for us throughout these conversations is to come with kind of open hearts and open hands to maybe hear from God anew and maybe see something in this that we haven't seen before. If somebody asked you to describe yourself, what would be your reaction? I mean, before you even said anything, how would it feel? I'd hesitate. Yeah. To me, it depends on who it is and whether I can kind of joke around or not, right? So if it's somebody that I don't know well, then I probably would hesitate. If it was somebody I know well, then I would probably start with handsome, uh, attractive, uh, just to watch them roll their eyes and laugh a little bit. Mm-hmm. I go straight to the moment when I'm being picked up at the airport. Usually it's like, well, I'm in a black outfit, you know, or I'm, I'm short, or I have a blue suitcase, or, you know, I tend to go physical and concrete. That's what I think of immediately. I think in many cases, and I'm going to make a generalization, but knowing each one of us a little bit, I think probably where we would want to start is with a little bit of humility, but also with honesty. I think both of those would be important because we wouldn't try to, I mean, there's a certain element of pride that wants to make you more than you are. And there's a certain Mm -hmm. element of pride that maybe wants to have you withhold some things. And so Mm -hmm. I think there's a sense in which there could be some humble honesty as you try to frame your response to what do you like? Mm -hmm. And I say that that way because there's a place in the New Testament where Jesus describes himself. And, I mean, there are a whole lot of things Jesus could have said that would have been true about who he is. But he doesn't go there. I think what he goes to is 
the kind of humble honesty that probably we would hope we would go to. So Daniel, would you read for us Matthew eleven twenty nine, where Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people? Yeah. And honestly, this is one of the most important passages to me ever, because mm-hmm. it's where Jesus says, come to me if you're heavy and burdened. And I think all of us are there often. Jesus describes himself by saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Mm-hmm. Now, this is God in human flesh. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the Son of God, the creator of the universe, Mm -hmm. the one who's going to go to the cross to be our Savior and our rescuer. And when he has a moment to describe himself, he says, I'm gentle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm humble in heart. Now, in the very least, that's unexpected, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you tend to read that back into the text you're working? Into Exodus 34? Yeah. I think they're very similar. And the reason I think they're very similar is because in both cases, we have a person of the Godhead describing themselves mm-hmm. and describing themselves mm-hmm. accurately. They're not overblowing it. They're not making more than there is as if that were possible uh, with God himself. But I mean, here, Jesus describes himself in these wonderful terms of welcome Yeah, and to your point about unexpected, I think what's maybe unexpected in both passages is we might expect a God to introduce themselves as powerful or Mm -hmm. mighty or Mm -hmm. deserving of glory. But in both of these cases, this one, gentle and humble of heart, and the Exodus passage, a God of steadfast love. That's what's unexpected. Mm -hmm. We might expect something big, but it's actually very gentle and inviting, as you said. I think you're onto something because in both cases, it's like he's coming down to broken people. Mm-hmm. All of this is why we have these rare moments where God describes himself, but he describes himself in ways that are not off-putting. Mm-hmm. There are ways that are inviting, as yeah. you said, Daniel. And I think also it's very important to see the common thread between these two descriptions because, as we mentioned in our last conversation, part of why Jesus came in the New Testament was to reveal to us the heart of his Father, who we're seeing describe himself now in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So it shouldn't surprise us that the Jesus who came to reveal the Father would have some of the same tone and characteristics and attitude in his self-description as we see from the Father in Exodus 34. And in fact, in the verses just before the ones that Daniel read, Jesus talks about his relationship with his Father and how mm-hmm. they are one. That's a great point, Bill. I mean, that yeah. this is the same Jesus. So yesterday we saw that Israel had sinned at the foot of Mount Sinai. The stone tablets had been broken that contained the law, the Ten Commandments. But God comes to Moses and says, get two more stones, come up on the mountain, We're going to do a reset of this. And uh, when Moses gets up on the mountain and God comes to him, he describes himself to Moses and through Moses to the children of God in these verses in the Old Testament, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. So, Mark, would you read those for us? Okay. So the Lord passes in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord. Now that would be Yahweh, Yahweh, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, 
in forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Okay, now every time we read those verses, we're going to kind of want to get stuck on the Mm -hmm. end because that's Mm -hmm. the part that we find so troubling. But we need to save that because that won't make any sense unless we see the other stuff first. And you know what, Bill? I wonder if many people, I'm guessing that a lot of people sort of ignore the first part because the second part is so troublesome. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of a 50-50, Mart. I think a lot of people read the first part and then ignore the second part because it's unpleasant. I think some people read the first part but don't believe it because of the second part. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think that we could have a couple of different reactions to it, and that's part of what makes this, I think, such an absolutely vital text. Mm -hmm. We said in our conversation yesterday that this text is repeated no less than 12 times in the Old Testament, which gives us a sense of just how significant it was. It became the Old Testament creedal statement about who God is. Mm -hmm. This is who he is. And so it's repeated over and over again. So the children of Israel throughout their history in the Old Testament had indisputable evidence of who their God was which makes it fascinating that they kept lapsing into idolatry anyway, Mm -hmm. even though they had this kind of God. But as we think about this, I want to focus for this conversation on the first aspects of how God describes himself. And I see them as three aspects of a similar trait, and that's merciful, gracious, and long-suffering. So where do you see the compassion? You know, some of our translations say compassionate. Where do you yeah. see that tying into That's those merciful. Um, okay. Merciful and compassionate, kind of interchangeable. Not exactly, but kind of interchangeable. Okay. Different translators opt for different words. The actual word is the Hebrew word rahum, which means to love, but not just to love from a distance, to love up close and actively. So when we're asking God for mercy or compassion, It's very similar because what we're asking God to do is not just to love us, but to have his love act on our behalf. Mm. So we're asking God to do something because he loves us Mm. when we pray for mercy. When we see the word gracious, the word gracious is the Hebrew word hanun, and it means to show favor to. So it's very similar to the word grace in the Mm. New Testament, isn't it? Mm -hmm. When we think of grace in the New Testament, how do we define it? We typically call it unmerited favor, getting the love you don't deserve to get. That's right. And that's the same kind of idea with the Hebrew word. It's God gives favor because he's a favoring God, not because Mm -hmm. we've done anything to earn it. Then the word long-suffering is the word erek, and it means slow to anger or long patience. And so the word long-suffering, long patience... It's very interesting because when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, into the Septuagint, the word they used here was makrothumia, which is found 14 times in the New Testament to describe patience. Hmm. And it's patience Mm -hmm. with people, isn't it, Bill? Not just circumstances, but people. Hmm. Yeah, Yeah. which are the hardest things to have patience with. I think so. And it sounds then, Bill, like you're saying that, that the actual word Anger is not even necessarily in the word. So it's actually two words. It's arek, meaning long, and then op, which means nose, which represents anger in the Bible. So it's long anger, 
it's actually two words together that would be long mm-hmm. anger is how you would see it. So it's like the anger being pushed off mm-hmm. and yeah. pushed off and pushed off. So the word anger is there, but it's this like being pushed off into the future continuously. And I just wonder whether or not the nose, you know, you can smell good things, you can True. Smell, <laughs> even fragrance, or you can smell awful things. And my mm-hmm. guess is there is a contextual yeah. meaning here. Yeah. Well, and in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel lapse into idolatry, sometimes God says their sins have come up before me. Mm. And you get the idea in the same way that a pleasing sacrifice comes Mm -hmm. up before him. Mm -hmm. Maybe like you're saying, Mark, the stench of wrongdoing comes Mm -hmm. up before him as well. Um, I think that's at least a possibility. Now, what's so interesting is you take all these three together, merciful slash compassionate, gracious, long-suffering. What God leads with is, in a sense, the Lord merciful. Hmm. In spite of how they often behave, this was so firmly believed by the Jews in the Old Testament that Jonah actually used it as a reason to rebel against God because he was so convinced God was this way. He didn't want to obey God and go to Nineveh. Read real quickly for us, Elisa, Jonah 4, verse 2. Okay, so Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, "Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah was told to go and take a message to Israel's greatest enemies, and he goes the opposite direction. Why? Because he is that convinced that this is who God is. Mm-hmm. And I think as a starting point, that is so dramatic because the Lord merciful told Israel he was going to meet with them once a year on a place called the mercy seat, Mm. a place where they would experience as a nation through sacrifice God's mercy upon them in a way that is both unexpected and liberating. The Lord merciful is where he starts as he describes himself. Yeah, the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. He begins with mercy. And aren't we all glad to know that that is true about him? Glad to have you listening to Discover the Word. Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day are on the table with you exploring this foundational description of what God is like in Exodus 34. That has to be our assumption in any part of Scripture that we read, especially the difficult passages. And then even this has some troubling aspects to it that we'll talk about in depth later in this podcast. Well, the group will continue their conversation called, What Kind of Father Is He? after this quick break. The Discover the Word podcast is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries. And if you're looking for more resources to aid you in your spiritual walk, I hope you'll check out the Our Daily Bread daily devotional videos. These free YouTube videos are only two to three minutes long, and I think they'll help you draw closer to God. People like Elisa and Bill and Daniel and Rasul Berry, Aaron Eddy, Andrew Bolton, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Michelle Pilar, Don Moen, the Kendrick brothers, and lots more discuss biblically-based topics using Scripture as the foundation. 
And uh, you can watch these videos when you visit odb.org video. If you scroll down, you'll see a place where you can subscribe to them and get them delivered to you in an email seven days a week. That's how I keep up with them. The Our Daily Bread daily devotional videos, just another aspect of what we're doing here at Our Daily Bread Ministries. Again, go to ODB for Our Daily Bread, odb.org slash video. And now another important piece of what God is like, according to Exodus 34 and verse 6. Okay, what are some things that are good in abundance? Pie. <laughs> Pie. You know, if you're going if you're going through a really dry spell, I mean, to the point that crops are not growing, you know, at the wrong time of year, mm-hmm. a really good rain, mm-hmm. an abundant rain. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to say it, which everybody's expecting from my lips right here, just an abundance of time with grandkids. That is so soul-filling for me. Love that. Yeah. Mm. Let's add some years to it. I think one of the most wonderful times in abundance is when you sit around a table together after a meal, but you just laugh and you laugh. You're with people, you know, you just... Just just community. Yeah, Yeah. that kind of lavish community. We really don't ever want to get up, and it's just the best moment. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's almost like in Psalm 23 where David says, my cup overflows. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's one of those times where you almost sit and think, it just couldn't get any better than this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really cool that in the New Testament, there are several times when the Bible talks about blessings from God being given to us in abundance. Mm. Yeah. What are some of the things that come to your mind that God gives us where the word abundant or abundance or abound maybe uses? Well, most obvious to me is Jesus saying, I've come to give you life to the full mm-hmm. or abundant life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John, John 10. 10. 10. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In Romans 15 is one of my favorite where Paul writes that God wants us to abound in hope. Mm-hmm. I mean, Boy, isn't that a helpful thing to hear right now? No kidding. Um, we're told that God abounds to us in grace in Romans 5, that he offers us abundant comfort and encouragement in 2 Corinthians 1 because he's the God of all mm-hmm. encouragement and comfort. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. again, to me, it kind of all wraps up in that phrase, my cup overflows. Mm-hmm. And so since that's how God deals with us, it shouldn't be surprising that the next part of what he wants to talk to us about in describing himself are areas of abundance. Mm -hmm. When I think about the fact that God's working in us is a working of abundance, it kind of challenges my prayers because I sometimes go to God in prayer like he was stingy Mm -hmm. or that he was looking for reasons to not bless me or whoever I'm praying for in a moment. But when I'm reminded that he's a God of abundance, that he's a God of generosity, that changes the way I think about praying. How does it strike you? Well, one of the ways I think we talk about that is do we have a scarcity mentality when it comes to our life in Christ? Mm -hmm. Do we believe that there is just a thimble full of abundant fullness? So how do we handle it then? If it is our awareness of daily need that brings us to God, and a lot of that need is with respect to what we don't have or what we're waiting for, on him for, mm-hmm. how does the sense of abundance then, mm-hmm. how does that change our neediness? Especially when we see in Christianity an abuse of the idea where like I get whatever I want and God wants me to be super wealthy and successful. And that's how we define abundance very culturally in our cultural terms. So yeah, to Mart's point, how do we reconcile those ideas? 
Well, and I'll go back to where we started by saying that when we talked about things in abundance, we talked about things that have a positive or a negative. I mean, Daniel, your first reaction was pie. I think we would all agree that pie is great. (laughs) You can have too much pie, Daniel. You might not think so, but once you get my waistline, you will know that too much pie can be a problem. So I think that there is a caution that just like there can be too much of abundance of things, that there can be too much expectation of abundance that can drive us to a point of demanding from God. And when I think, Mart, in your comment about how do we deal with the neediness and so forth like that, to me it helps me because if I know that God is a God of abundance, a God who is generous, who is lavish, and I'm not receiving for some reason in this moment, then I know it's for a reason. Mm. I know that my wise father, who's smarter than I am, I can trust him, okay, because he's a God of abundance. If I'm not receiving in this moment, then God's doing something else that I'm not aware of, and I just need to trust him and Mm -hmm. wait on him and his timing. That makes sense. So let's look. We're in this amazing text in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, and I keep repeating. This is repeated 12 times in the Old Testament because I want us to feel the significance of this over and over. I mean, honestly... If this is how God wants us to know him, then it's really important that we do our best within the capabilities of what we have to try and get it right so that we don't misrepresent him to others who may be struggling to understand the kind of father that we have. And so as we think about abundance in the context of God describing himself to Moses and through Moses to us ultimately— Let's read again through these verses, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, and then focus on the parts where we find abundance right in the heart of it. So Daniel, would you read those verses for us today? Yeah, so again, just to remind us, this is how God is describing himself. And God says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, yesterday we saw elements of mercy, compassionate or merciful, gracious, slow to anger. Today we kind of land in the middle with this word abounding. So there's our Mm -hmm. abundance. Abounding in loving-kindness, and my translation says truth, but you read what, Daniel? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Faithfulness. And then again, loving-kindness or steadfast love. So, Daniel, you led us through some conversations on this sometime back. So the word loving-kindness or steadfast love, just give us 30 seconds on that, which is a crazy thing to ask. (laughs) Yeah, the first thing I was thinking is you were describing how these verses are repeated 12 times in the Bible. The core word in the middle of this is chesed, which is used over 250 times in the Old Testament to describe God's love. God's love that is faithful, God's love that is steadfast, God's love that is good. And it can be translated different ways throughout, but it's this steadfast love, this faithful love, this ongoing love Mm -hmm. that continues to walk with us and follow Mm -hmm. us and seek what's best for us. What we've got is this 
chesed love, this steadfast love, this unfailing love, and it's repeated with something in the middle. So what we've kind of got is a chesed sandwich, Hmm. as one commentator put it, (laughs) where we have God's steadfast love bracketing, my translation says truth, yours says faithfulness. I think faithfulness really is the most accessible way to look at it. So we have his steadfast love bracketing his faithfulness. So how might those things work together? Well, even just the connection between truth and faithfulness, because that word can be translated either way. That Mm -hmm. idea, faithfulness is like the ongoing working out of truth in the world. So we have God's steadfast love, his faithfulness, where we can look back and see how he's been faithful in the past to have confidence that he'll be faithful now and in the future. And what gives us that confidence is the love that comes on both sides of that, a steadfast love that doesn't go away. You know, it makes me wonder, how did that hit Moses' ear? I wonder how he heard that. And especially in light of the fact that he's headed up to his second round of getting the law. Yeah. And to me, obviously the scriptures don't tell us because Moses doesn't describe his reaction. But to me, I would think that he would respond with hope. Because if, for instance, when the children of Israel had the golden calf causing Moses to smash the tablets, which were the symbols of God's covenant with his people, I mean, it would be easy to imagine Moses thinking the covenant's over. We've already blown it. We're done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden he hears God saying this, and he said, maybe not. Maybe there's a reason why these two new tablets had to be quarried. Maybe there's a reason I came back up on the mountain. Maybe there's a reason. Maybe God hasn't given up on us yet because he's loyal love, loyal love, faithfully expressed. And I think that's really good because God didn't say this the first time around, at least that we have record of. Mm -hmm. So how much more weight and meaning does it have in light of breaking the covenant Mm -hmm. that God reveals himself as someone who's steadfast, love, and faithful? Now I want us to go forward into the New Testament Elisa, read for us John 1, 17. Okay. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Do you hear an echo there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the gracious God who is faithful and loving sends his son as the replacement for Moses, <laughs> by mm-hmm. the way. Mm-hmm. And he comes with grace and truth once again. The Jesus of the New Testament consistently revealing to us this loving Father who's trustworthy and faithful and whose love can be dependent upon. I know one of Elisa's favorite stories in the Gospels is in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is at the home of Simon the Pharisee and the so-called sinful woman arrives and anoints Jesus and weeps over him. And uh, there's a very interesting point where Jesus declares her to be forgiven. Mm. How do the religious leaders at the table react to that? Well, Jesus' statement is something like, um, the one who's been forgiven much is the one who loves much. And I think that ran smack dab into pretty much heresy to the religious leaders because they were all about keeping the law and Mm -hmm. not sinning and not even needing to be forgiven. 
Yeah, I wonder if that's also the same type of thing Jesus was talking about when he said, it's not those who are well that need a doctor, but Mm -hmm. I've come for those Mm -hmm. who are sick. Mm -hmm. Not Mm -hmm. that there were well people, but there were people who thought they were well and didn't recognize maybe some of the brokenness within them. And so he came kind of, Elisa, you mentioned love, but also like this healing doctor uh, Mm -hmm. that is trying to heal brokenness. Mm -hmm. But if you identify with the, the men at the table, you can kind of understand what they were feeling. If somebody didn't uphold the law, you know, this whole community could just, could run wild, right? Could go downhill really fast. Sure. So they, feel, they felt, I think, a certain moral responsibility to hold up the standards. Mm. I think it's one of the most intriguing episodes in the Gospels for a lot of reasons. And some because of what you're saying, Mark, because, you know, we tend to take the Pharisees out and smack them around once in a while just because it makes us feel better about ourselves. But (laughs) the reality is that many of them thought they were serving God in what they were doing. Many of them thought that they were maintaining the covenant or at least trying to. To me, the most fascinating part of that event is that after Jesus declares this woman's sins to be forgiven, the religious leaders turn to each other and say, who is this man mm-hmm. who forgives sins? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, why would that be so troubling to them? Yeah, it doesn't mean that they necessarily believed he could forgive sins, but just the fact that he would proclaim it and mm-hmm. act like he could mm-hmm. already bothered them. Because that's something that only God does, and God does that because of the sacrificial system that they faithfully mm-hmm. are participating in. Yeah, so they would have looked at it not only as him being arrogant, but blasphemous, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has a really interesting thing. I'm not going to read it. I'll just paraphrase it. He said, if you step on my toes or you do something to me, I can say, I forgive you. But... If you step on my toes or you do something to me and somebody else says to you, I forgive you, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Right? That's good. Right. Yeah. Unless the person who is saying, I forgive you for what you did to them, has the authority to be that kind of forgiving person. Yeah. And that's the part, as you said, Daniel, they didn't understand about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Because he was God in human flesh, he had the authority to forgive and to forgive anyone and everyone because, again, as we've been seeing all through these conversations, he is here to, yes, accomplish salvation, but also to represent God the Father. Mm-hmm. And part of the way God the Father is describing himself in the Exodus 34 passage we've been looking at is that he's a God who forgives. Mm. And he forgives me for what I do to you. Isn't it also true that he forgives us for what we've done to him, even in hurting one another? Because there's a sense in which Jesus was the hurt one. I mean, so was the Father. That's Mm. what I'm thinking about is that in that C.S. Lewis illustration, it can feel so far removed. But ultimately, and this whole conversation has already moved me, because if I've learned anything in being on Discover the Word from y'all is the heart of our God of compassion towards those who don't deserve compassion, which includes people like the Pharisees, Mm -hmm. to even have compassion there. And all of it is because our God took our hurt. So when we sin, judge, Mm -hmm. or prideful, whatever you want to fill in the blank, in this five seconds I've been talking, I've already done, you know, I've hurt God. 
And that, in a way, is the compassionate, empathetic owning of the wrong and therefore the authority of forgiveness. Yeah. He can overcome our hurting people that he loves. Yeah. And I think what C.S. Lewis is describing might have been the way the Pharisees viewed it. Mm. <laughs> How can you forgive her for something that she didn't do to you? Yeah. Well, he can do that because he's God and God is a God of forgiveness. And they should have known that because that's what God had described himself as all the way back in Exodus 34, right? Good segue. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back to Exodus 34 once more. And we're looking at verses six and seven where Moses has come up onto the Mount Sinai following Israel's sin with the golden calf, he has come and God has revealed himself with these statements. And again, it's interesting in our first conversation, Mark read us Exodus 33:11, in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, Moses met with God face to face like a person meets with a friend. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what he saw here. It's what he hears, what God says, mm-hmm. what God declares to be true about himself. And Exodus 34, 6 and 7, once again, we want to read the whole thing, and I want to remind you yet again, this is so important, it's repeated 12 times in the Old Testament, because God wanted it to dig deeply into the hearts of his people, that this is who I am, this is how I want you to know me. So, Mark, would you read those verses again? Okay, the Lord described himself as the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Okay, now once again, we want to push that last part off because we'll talk about that in our final conversation. But so far we've seen that God operates with a heart of mercy, and we saw he was compassionate, he was gracious, he was patient uh, with us. We saw that he deals with us with abundance. Mm-hmm. Even in our times of need, he is an abundant God who may, for one reason or another, in his own wisdom, not pour out that abundance in that moment, but he abounds in chesed, steadfast love, and faithfulness to us. Now we see that he forgives. And three things. What are the three things that it says he forgives? Because each one is important. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, one of the things we talk a lot about here on Discover the Word is that words have ranges of meaning. And translators pick the words that they use to translate a particular word based on something. And sometimes it's based on the context. Sometimes it's based, if we're going to be real honest, sometimes it's based on their theological disposition. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to be honest about that because none of us would be capable of doing this perfectly because words have ranges of meaning. But I want you to hear the range of meanings of the Hebrew word for iniquity. It can mean to do wrong. It can mean to twist. It can mean to be bent. Hmm. Now, that last one really jumped out at me, to be bent. What do you hear in that, Bill? Well, what I hear in that is a word that we've used a lot during these conversations already, and that's the word brokenness. Hmm. In some sense, we are a twisted version of what God created us to be originally. Hmm. We are not as he intended for us because sin has bent us. Hmm. 
to me, it feels very much like he's talking about human frailty here. Mm. Just part of our fallen, broken humanity because we're bent. And so sometimes we're going to do wrong just because we're bent. Okay, so there's two sides to it then is what I hear there. We're hurt, but because we're hurt, we can do wrong. We can hurt others. That's right. Yeah, and there's also throughout the Old Testament, right, the straight path and the crooked path. Yeah. You know, and often the straight path is described as like walking with God and following him into what's best. And the crooked path is described as walking off of God's path. And as a result, usually it leads to self-destruction and what's bad for us and for the world. So if we're going to apply this, it's that God forgives our bentness, our Mm -hmm. brokenness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That thing that we inherited from our first parents, um, and it's described different ways in different theological systems. But to me, because of what happened in the garden, we're all bent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there are going to be some things that happen just because we're broken people. Okay, so it's a crookedness then. Yeah, yeah. It has different ways of hearing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it has different ways of expressing itself. Yeah. Now, that feels to me like human frailty. Mm-hmm. The next part feels like intentionality, because the next word is transgression, and that is wantonness, wrongdoing, rebellion. Mm-hmm. This isn't stuff that necessarily I do just because I'm a human being and I mess up sometimes. This is stuff I do because I want to do the wrong thing in that moment. Mm. Yeah, in fact, one of the other ways that word can be translated is crime, to mm-hmm. do a crime. Interesting. Yeah. So when God talks about being a God of forgiveness, there are those things that are a part of our brokenness that mm. just we mess up sometimes because we're messed up. Okay, that's one thing. But now he gets into this, when we intentionally do what we're not supposed to do, and we know we're doing it and we do it anyway, Mm. forgiveness is available for that too. There's a certain darkness to that, isn't there? When we intentionally do harm. And I think because it is so dark, Mark, that leads us also to see just how light his forgiveness is. Because his forgiveness will even come to us in those times when we are doing the wrong thing because that's what we want. Hmm. The third of these words is the word sin, which actually parallels very closely to the New Testament Greek word hamartia, which means to fall short or to miss the mark. And this, I think, really speaks to all of us, but it would especially have spoken to Israel because they had been given a law that they couldn't keep. Hmm. They had been given a standard they couldn't reach. This is the first time this statement of God's character is seen in Scripture, right? I think so. Okay, so, and they haven't had the law very long, like three seconds, and they broke it. So how contextual, you know, is this biographical (laughs) summary of God's character, autobiographical Mm -hmm. summary of God's character, how appropriate this is mm-hmm. as they are struggling with their iniquity, with their rebellion, with their sin. Yeah. When you think about the children of Israel murmuring and complaining because there's no water, I mean, that's kind of a human thing. Mm-hmm. When you think about them making a promise to keep a law that they can't keep, that's falling short. When you get to the golden calf, that's on purpose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet everything in their short journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai that they've experienced in the negative, the darkness that you're talking about, Mark, every bit of that, there's forgiveness available to them because God wants them to know he's a forgiving God. Yeah. 
Bill, just to push back a little bit, aren't they still wet behind the ears, though? I mean, they've lived generation after generation after generation in slavery and in a pagan, idolatrous culture. And now Moses has come on behalf of God. It's been just a few weeks mm-hmm. since they've been rescued. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when Moses doesn't show up for, what, over 40 days, you have to imagine that, again, a certain human is, well, what are we going to do now? Yeah. yeah, part of that bentness, right, is like, maybe feeling some fear at that point or some lostness and responding back to their default. And so even that bentness, right? Like that default is we got to save ourselves or find a God who will. Self-sufficiency. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it so important that as God self-describes for them, that he wants them to know this from the very start, we've only been in this thing for a short time. There've already been some problems. You need to know, when you mess up, come to me. Hmm. The New Testament tells us if anyone confesses their sin, God is faithful, again, dependable, trustworthy, to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. This is who God is. God is a forgiving God. He's not going to quit on them. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. His love is steadfast, even to the point of, with all the wrong that's happened already, in such a short time. Yeah. God's a God who forgives. Yeah, that part of the description forms the foundation for where the entire story of the Bible is headed. God is a forgiving God. And the rescue he provided is a reflection of that that we see over and over again in Scripture. Well, you've probably noticed that uh, each time we read Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, Uh, What is kind of a troubling ending to this description God gives of himself to Moses. It ends with, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Hmm. All the good stuff we've talked about, but this doesn't seem fair. What kind of God, what kind of father is he that would punish kids for something they didn't even do? Well, Mart, Elisa, Bill, and Daniel come back to talk about that after this word about what we'll be studying in our next podcast. Daniel Ryan Day leads our next study on the Discover the Word podcast called Surprise. Next, I'm super excited. We get to talk about the story of Jonah. And I think that we'll find that Jonah is a very surprising story, that it's a very challenging story, especially for the culture we live in today. Yeah, some of the questions we'll explore together include, uh, was Jonah a real dude? I mean, the being swallowed by a great fish sounds like fantasy. And why does God seem so concerned with me loving my enemies? I mean, by definition, my enemies are my enemies, and I really don't like them very much. And to be honest, seeing God judge them would be my preference to seeing him show them mercy. We'll see how Jonah helps with that. And we'll also talk about how Jonah points to Jesus. I don't think you'll have any problem seeing why we called our study of the book of Jonah Surprise. Don't miss this two-part, two-hour study next on the Discover the Word podcast. And now the conclusion of this study called, What Kind of Father Is He? Wow. Um, I don't know about you, but this has been a pretty full series of conversations on Exodus 34. 
What are some of the things we've seen God revealing about himself so far? I think what jumped out to me is this is the second time that Moses has been on the mountain to receive the law from God and specifically these tablets that represent the covenant, the promises that God's making to the people. And the first time, at least we don't have any record of God's describing himself in this way. It's the second time right after they've made a big mistake and built a golden calf and tried to take things into their own hands that God responds by describing himself as merciful and steadfast and forgiving. Yeah, Daniel, I think that context really Mm -hmm. struck me too. This is after they've messed up really bad and a lot of people have died as a result of their mistake. And Bill, you've helped us understand that this autobiography, you know, it's, it's like a could you send me your bio? I need to put something in the bulletin. Could you send me your bio? I need to put something on the back of a book, or I need to share who you are with you know, my grandchildren. This is how God describes himself, and it's repeated 12 other times. And the context for it is something we need to hold on to. And then the words within it mm-hmm. are so amazing. Yeah, I think the thing that struck me over and over again is how important must this be if this is how God wants himself to be understood? I mean, all of us know what it feels like to be misunderstood, right? Mm-hmm. To be misrepresented and how frustrating or disappointing or, or sometimes even painful mm-hmm. that can be. This is how God wants us to know him. And to me, that just elevates everything about the things that we've been discussing together in these conversations. And today, we're going to go from the rose to the thorns, if you will. And it's a part of it that quite frankly, many in our generation really struggle with. And we want to acknowledge that the struggle's real. And we want to acknowledge that even though it appears contradictory, the same God is revealing the last part about himself that's revealing the first part. And so somehow they have to be able to work together. Yeah, and the problem is it just doesn't seem fair. Yeah. From a human perspective, we look at things and we say, I don't get it. And it doesn't look loving. And no. it doesn't look compassionate. So let's see what it is that doesn't look loving and compassionate. Elisa, for one final time, would you read for us Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7? Okay, this is uh, Moses hearing from the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, every time in these conversations, and we've read this text at least once in every conversation, when you get to that last part, it kind of goes, uh, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you Mm -hmm. feel this kind of, oh, Boy, I wish it would have ended with forgiveness of sin (laughs) and then moved on. But it doesn't. I think if it just said that he was a God who makes, he holds parents accountable, Mm -hmm. that would be one thing. But look what happens to the kids. The kids end up paying for the parents' mistake. And God says, in some way, he is visiting the parents' mistakes on the kids. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's live with that. Because that's the tension. I mean, listen... This is so far over my head that uh, I'm not going to claim that I can fully resolve anything. However, 
what you just said, Mart, I think is the key issue. And the key issue is the word visiting. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What does the word visiting mean? Because it could be understood a variety of different ways. It could be understood to have God say, you know what, because you did that, your kids, I'm going to do this to them, and I'm going to yeah. do this to them, and I'm going to do this to them down to the third and fourth generation. However, there are other places in the scripture where it says a man has to be punished for his own sins, not his sons, and a son has to be punished for his own sins and not his father's. Either God's contradicting himself or we're not understanding the word visiting very well. And that word alone has such a huge range of mm -hmm. meanings. It can mean like counting, so mm -hmm. like remembering, putting a number to something, assigning a position, investigating. There's so many different things that that word can mean. And each time you put one of those different words that you could translate it as, it changes that whole meaning. I yeah. mean, even just investigating. Mm -hmm. It could be God investigating the consequences of the sin that the parents had in the way it's still impacting mm -hmm. the children. So there's so many different words that could go there that I think it really depends on who do you think God is and how do you think God acts in the world? And when you answer those two questions, then it helps us to begin to flesh out that more. And so God has described himself first. And so we have to take that context of the first four conversations that we've had to begin to unpack what visiting might mean. Meaning that he is compassionate. Yeah. Yes, and loving, kind, and, and gracious, and etc., and forgiving. And one of the elements from a prayer conversation that is helping me here, it's interesting that the translators use the word iniquity. He visits iniquity on the next generations. And, you know, that sounds like awfulness, and it is. But, you know, the way, Bill, you led us through some conversations with that word meaning bent, brokenness. And we, I think we're kind of comfortable with the reality that at the fall, we all were broken. That's not going to change in this lifetime. You know, Jesus' death on the cross will change that forever. And we are invited to live a redeemed life in relationship with him. But the bentness, the brokenness of our beings is not going to go away. And if I view visit or allow to be handed down the warpedness, the bentness of my original parents into every single generation, that reveals my need, my ongoing need, my unending need for God all mm. the time. That's really good, Lisa. Yeah, and just the idea of like hurt people hurt people and broken people break people. And so all parents are broken. And so yeah. they are, whether they, even the best parents in the world are breaking their kids mm -hmm. or hurting their kids in some way yeah. by don't be. teaching right. them to look at the world a certain mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And the other thing we haven't talked about too that I think is really helpful in this is just the numbers that we're given too. We're given a thousandth generation and then we're given third and fourth generation. Mm -hmm. And what's described as uh, a characteristic of God first is that he keeps his steadfast love for the thousandth generation. Hmm. And then whatever's happening here with the sin that's affecting these families, mm -hmm. it's third and fourth generation. So if nothing else, we can walk away from this going, his love is so much bigger, right? Yeah. Thousands of generations, his love covers, and sin only has a smaller impact than mm -hmm. his love does. Hmm. 
I think we get the idea that there's consequence. Yeah. And I think we get from the garden on a sense that it was wise of God to design consequence Mm -hmm. so that we realize that we are living in a broken world. But it's the idea of him, it's saying that he punishes the kids for what they're, that's Mm -hmm. where I think it's hard. It's hard to swallow that. Yeah, and that's where I think the idea of what Daniel's saying, the very best of parents don't parent perfectly and our imperfection gets carried out Mm. into the, the following generations. And that happens in a couple of ways. Commentators offer a couple of different options and I think both of them in their own way are helpful. One is that our actual actions as parents have consequences and our kids may have to live with those consequences. I think of somebody who perhaps has been the subject of huge media notoriety because of some scandal that they were in. And, I mean, I think about their fourth-grade kid who has to go to school. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows that their dad did that or their mom did that or whoever. And you think that poor child is bearing the consequences of that action. The other part of it is not just the living with the consequences of what the parents do, but also living with the example that they've seen because the example that kids see many times in the home they grow up in is what they end up reliving in their own experience because that's the only example they have. And sometimes, you know, when you see someone who's really broken in tragic ways and you see all that going on, and sometimes the first thing we think was, wow, you know, I wonder what kind of home they grew up in. And it may be that they grew up in a great home and that moms and dads, you know, really did their best. And and the kids, you know, to go back to our previous conversation on rebellion, their kids just by their own intentionality went off the rails. We see that, too. But sometimes kids live out the examples they were given. Hmm. And that's another way in which the consequences are kind of lived out, not only by the fact that they bear the weight of choices that they didn't make, but they follow the only example they had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it could even be the influence of prior generations beyond and earlier sure. than their own parents. Sure, sure. Yeah. And there are just so many different things like that that I think could fit into how this is understood if we understand that there's some elasticity in the definition of the word visiting. Hmm. Uh, And I think that's why I get so much hope when I look at the numbers again, because it shows that even the brokenness that I'm passing on to my kids, it may last for a generation or two or three or four, Hmm. but God's steadfast love lasts longer than my brokenness that I've passed on. That's good, Daniel. And think about it this way, too. The Bible Project, I know, Daniel, you're really fond of the Bible Project. And I went on the Bible Project and looked up what they had on justice, Because we talk about the justice of the parents receiving the consequences of their choices, but is it just, is it fair for their children and their children's children and so forth? The Bible Project points out that there are two kinds of justice. There's retributive justice, which we would Mm. classify as punishment, but there's also restorative justice, Mm. where justice is the administering of consequences in order to correct in order to bring back, in order to restore. And what I would suggest is that one way to look at this is the reason God allows the consequences to carry on is because maybe it takes three or four generations to restore back to wholeness and rightness 
what was broken by a bad choice. Mm. If God is a God of mercy, if God is a God of steadfast, trustworthy love, and if God is a God who ultimately forgives, then somehow it seems to me that in these consequences, there's something in God's heart that wants to restore and make whole again. Reading that difficult part of this passage with the context of the previous part of that passage in mind and understanding what visiting can mean even heightens the importance of this Exodus 34 passage. This really is basic to the whole of Scripture. And Jesus ends up bearing the consequence of the whole of humanity and says, Father, forgive them. Important study of a crucial passage and so glad to have you here at the table with us on Discover the Word for these conversations called, What Kind of Father Is He? Bill Crowder led Marty Hahn and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day on a great journey exploring this important foundation passage in Exodus 34. Well, Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always points us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And as we close this episode, just want you to know that we're grateful to have friends like you joining us for these conversations. And we're also grateful for these supportive friends who make this ministry possible through their financial giving. Discover the Word is free for anyone to listen to. But producing and distributing these studies comes, of course, with expense. And so your gift today will help us to continue to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. You can show your support by giving online at discovertheword.org. Click the Donate tab. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.